0: Vision is a big thing. We are trying to personalize vision. And so this year, just to remind you, we are going to focus on the spirit-filled praying life. This is why it dovetails with the first statement of our vision. And of course, you know what the vision first statement is, right? Shall we say it together? Just the first statement, okay? One, two, three. To become... Okay, that's it. That's what we're going to focus on, okay? It's a spiritual, fervently praying church family. That's what we're going to focus on in this segment. We're going to use three months to do it. This is the first month, and we're going to focus on the Spirit-filled life. And so I want to introduce the speaker for today. David is an old friend of mine. But let me say something. Many of you, he is he one of the past speaker of our church camp. So many of you know him personally. But let me say one thing that I appreciate about him that you may not know. Uh, to those who are outside Singapore, I usually send an annual Christmas letter. out. So when I'm in the States, I send it back to friends in Singapore. And for the last few years, almost invariably after I sent a letter out, David will always reply with an encouraging statement. And that statement usually helped me in my Christian walk, in just one statement alone. And one of the years that he, this is a statement he sent back to me after I talked about the 12 days of Christmas, was my Christmas letter. He said that, Peter, I thank you that you have open hands and open hearts. That's how the best way to receive from the Lord. And it stuck with me since that about five years ago, that that he responded to me. And my prayer for you, as you listen to him, is that you will have open hands and open hearts, because the Lord is going to bless you bountifully. David is an excellent speaker, and we are just blessed to have him with us. So without any further ado, let us give him a hand.
1: A very good afternoon. I always get nervous when uh, people like uh, Pastor Peter introduce me. Uh, You know, sometimes people introduce speakers, they raise the expectations so high that it leaves us with fear and trembling whether we can ever meet expectations. I want to thank uh, Pastor Peter and the leadership of uh, Queenstown Baptist Church. Uh, We have a long association. Uh, Pastor Peter mentioned the camp that I was at. I will never forget something which uh, one of our leaders, I shall not mention his name, but um, he really did something I thought was a little underhand. Now He said that, uh, Pastor David has been with the Bible Presbyterian Church for too long. He should now be part of the Baptist Church. (laughs) Uh, I I told him, I said, um, how could you say something like that? He said, well, it's a prophecy. I don't know. And uh, those of you there, you remember he gave me a whistle. He bought a whistle from one of the shops nearby and he said, uh, This is the Baptist bird calling for you. <laughs> so every time you blow the whistle, remember the Baptist bird is calling for you to leave the Bible Presbyterian Church and join the Baptist Church. Well, I have uh, wonderful relationships with uh, the Baptist churches. I spoke at the uh, pastor's uh, retreat last year and got to meet some really godly, great leaders, so I'm grateful every time when I come here, I feel at home, and one of the reasons why I feel at home here is because when you rebuild these facilities, these new buildings, uh, we did the same thing, except that we are one year behind you, and we used the same architect, and we used the same contractor, and you know what happened.
0: <laughs>
1: okay, so I tell when I come here, it looks a bit Quite similar to what we have. <laughs> yeah, the, the design and the thinking of the architects quite similar. Anyway, today I've been asked to address uh, roadblocks on the journey. Uh, and I thought what I would speak on is what I call the culture of uh, convenience. The culture of convenience. Um, over the last... Um, many years, I've been thinking a lot about uh, corporate culture and church culture. Those of you who work in the marketplace, you know that in any organization over time the organization and the corporation uh, develops a certain culture. And people do things often unknowingly because of the culture they are immersed in. And I find the same thing uh, in churches. Every church develops its own culture. And over time, over the years, over the decades, uh, a certain culture is set. It becomes the DNA of the church. Uh, So not too long ago, I was at a discussion, and somebody said something that stuck with me. You know, sometimes you hear something said, and after that, a lot of things are being said. But you go away remembering only the one thing. And this is what the person says. It says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Think about that. What does it mean? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Does it make sense to you? Okay, what it means is this. No matter what you do in planning strategies, setting up plans, casting vision, everything will be eaten up by culture. And I've seen that happening. Unless you change the culture, you will not change anything. At best, you will change something for a while, but the culture will take over and it will revert. So it's a case of taking two steps forward and then one step backward, and maybe even two steps backward. You're back to where you are. And I find this to be so true when I work with different churches, especially at the leadership level. They want to see changes happening in uh, churches and they look at what other churches are doing and they say that, that's a good program for us to implement, or that's a good idea for us to use. But unless they, are, they have the culture to accommodate the idea, to make that idea work, or to make that program work, they may do it for a while and people get excited. And then months later, or one or two years later, everything is back to square one. And it can be very discouraging. I know one church that went through such an experience and one time when I asked them, you know, do, we, do, do the leaders ever cast a vision for your church? And what they said was, we did it once, it didn't work. And we don't ever want to do it again because it was such a disappointment. So, what is the culture of QBC? What is the culture of churches in Singapore? Well, we're going to think about that and um, not just how culture affects everything we do, but what kind of culture should we begin to cultivate in our church? So shall we pray and ask God to help us? Lord, we thank you for an exciting start to the year for QBC. Thank you for the sense of anticipation we, we feel in this, um, in this room, something the Church is doing for the first time. And yet, Lord, as we wait upon you, we realize that without you, we can do nothing. We are just the branches. You are the vine. You are the one who can change us and transform us change our church and transform our church so we look to you to give us understanding give us insight and discernment most of all lord we pray for your your holy spirit to teach us so that this may not be the teaching or plans of men or the working of your spirit For we know that when your spirit works things will happen so we commend this time to you and the rest of all that has been planned for this year. In Jesus' name, Amen. What do I mean by the culture of convenience? When we want something easy, we want something quick, we want something cheap. Uh, some of you know that before I, pastored, uh, before I pastored the present church at Zion Vision. I was for many years the pastor of Mount Carmel Bible Presbyterian Church. And I remember at that time, uh, there was a period of time when I felt very discouraged because as I spoke with different church members, they were saying things which uh, showed that something was wrong, both with themselves and with the kind of Christianity that we were seeing in our church. Let me give you a couple examples. You know, when I see people who are absent from church for a while, I call them. So there's a couple. By the way, you know, as a pastor, you can tell who are present, who are absent, because they normally sit in the same place. Am I right? <laughs> so you look over here, and you see two empty chairs, and you know. So there's this couple who has not been coming to church uh, for, I think, for a month or so. So I decided to call them and said, oh, we missed you in church, you know? And he said, oh, yeah, 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 our, you know, we ran up with a problem with our car. Our car is in the workshop. Can you believe it? They have not been to church for a month because the ch- car is in the workshop. And they don't live very far away. I mean, granted that they have young children. It's very difficult to get young children into the car with you and go to church. Uh, so there's one example. It got me thinking, what kind of uh, church members do we have in our church who don't go to church because they don't have a car? Uh, another time, I met a couple who I noticed uh, were new in the church. Uh, young couple. I went up to them during the fellowship, uh, the fellowship time after service, and I said, "Oh, um, are you new to our church?" Say, "Yeah, yeah, we we just we just came today." And uh, and I said, um, "You know, how did you know about church?" And he said, no, 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 we, we, we don't intend to be here for long. You see, what happens is um, we actually come from another church and we normally drop our son for his violin lesson near the church. But for this one month, uh, the teacher is going to teach in a flat just across the road from here. Now, so we drop our son for his violin lesson. And it's very convenient for us to come just walk across the road to come to your church. But after one month, this teacher will go back to the place, then we'll go back to our church. How convenient, you drop up your son one place, or it's violent lesson, you come to church, after church you pick up your son and go home. So as I was thinking of uh, uh, this example, I'm I'm not sure whether there are more examples, maybe they are just a minority. But over the years I've spoken with different pastors and church leaders, and I find that it's quite common uh, for people to manage their life or live their Christian life according to what is convenient. Okay. So, the culture of convenience, you want something easy, you want something quick, and you want something cheap. So, let me get you into this uh, sign that I once saw in, um, at a shop. This is actually a tailor shop which is located in a tourist area. And it offers tourists a full suit of clothes in 24 hours. In other words, you go in, you take your measurements, and then you return the next day for a full three-piece suit, all ready to wear within 24 hours. And the sign outside the shop is fast service, low price, good quality. Now, when I look at a sign like this, I'm inclined to say, choose 82. Why? Because if you want fast service and low price, you can get poor quality, right? Uh, If you want low price and good quality, you're going to have slow service. And if you want fast service and good quality, you're going to pay a high price. Uh, In other words, you can't have it all three ways. And yet, in our consumer society, we demand all three. We want service fast, we want prices slow, and we want quality high. Now, I wouldn't have much to say if such demands uh, remain in the realm of goods and services. It's not wrong, it's not wrong for us to expect from service, low cost and best quality. If you are dining in a restaurant, or you are seeing a doctor, or you are buying a house, or choosing a service provider for your internet. Am I right? But what if such attitude spills over into the realm of spiritual things, into our relationship with God? Can we demand quick service from the Almighty God? delivered to us at a discount price and at the same time meeting our highest expectations. Not only do we want prompt service from God, we also want it cheap. The price tag must carry a discount, just like many of us when we go to a Christian bookstore, we always ask, is there a discount for those of us who are pastors or church workers? (laughs) By the way, I make a policy that when I buy things from... Christian bookshop or Christian restaurant not to forego the discount because I know bookshops are not doing very well these days. I'll just tell them, please, don't give me any discount. Uh, But we always ask for some kind of discounts. Uh, The bigger the discount, the better. We also want the best from God. We want the best from God, but we are not prepared to pay the price to get it. One of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer, one said, Christians habitually weep and pray over beautiful truth only to draw back from the same truth when it comes to the difficult job of putting it into practice. Now we weep, we pray over beautiful truth, but we draw back from the same truth when it comes to the difficult job of putting it into practice. And he goes on to say, it appears that too many Christians want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right, but are not willing to endure the inconvenience of being right. So you see a difference there, feeling right and being right. We want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right, but we are unwilling to endure the inconvenience of being right. So today I want us to look at this verse, a very well-known verse by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 4.7. And you know uh, this verse well. It is Paul's affirmation as he awaited execution the orders of the Emperor Nero. Paul knew that his time had come, and like a sacrificial offering, he was ready to be poured forth. Like a traveler at a port of departure, he knew that it was time for him to leave. So he writes this letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, giving him his last words. And in the fourth chapters of 2 Timothy, he gave his final instructions and exhortations. And as he came to the end, of the letter he says, i fought a good fight, i finished the race, i kept the faith. That's a powerful statement. Three sentences, very brief, but powerful. And that's it, that's the way Paul sums up his whole life. There was a fight, he fought it. There was a race, he finished it. There was a faith, he kept it to the end. So today I want us to look at each one of these sentences uh, in turn. So let's begin with the first one, the fight, the fight, a battle, a conflict, a war. I uh, don't know how many of you here are people who love a fight. Um, you want to join the fray, you want to draw your guns, and you want to just blaze away. Um, but if you agree with me, I think people who want to fight are in the minority, right? Um, I think most of us, if I'm mistaken, we avoid a fight if we can. We are not combative, we don't like to draw lines, make enemies, engage in conflict. We rather yield, or withdraw, or walk away. I notice here that Paul refers to the fight as a good fight. Now, that means that there are bad fights. the are bad fights that we get into. Like when we fight our brothers and sisters instead of our enemies. And those of you who know the Bible Presbyterian Church, you know their denomination broke up in 1988 because there was so much fighting among ourselves. We couldn't get along. In the end, we had to dissolve the whole denomination. And the 16 churches all went our separate ways. That's unfortunate. That I would consider a bad fight when we fight our brothers and sisters instead of our enemies. Or like when we fight for causes that are misguided. Um, suicide bombers. They have a cause that they are willing to die for. But is that a good fight? Or bad fights are also fights when we battle for self-glory and personal vengeance. You know, we want to promote ourselves or we want to push somebody down. Now, these are all bad fights. Now, Paul is not talking about this kind of fights. He's talking about a good fight. And this good fight is fought in several arenas. Basically, three. One, that's the fight against false teachers. In fact, if you read Second uh, Timothy, you find Paul talking about people who oppose the truth. People oppose the truth. In his letter to Timothy, Paul warns against false teachers, like those who oppose Moses of old. And much of Paul's life, you know, was spent speaking for the truth and against falsehood. There were false teachers who dogged him, who followed him, and who tried to undo the work that he did. Now, he was constantly in battle against them. Well, that's a battle that takes place outside of us, where we fight real enemies. But there's a battle also that's within us. Remember Paul was one who wrote in Romans 7, he says, what I want to do, I cannot. What I do not want to do, I kept doing. What I want, when I want to do good, evil is right with me. What a wretched man I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death? But what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate to do, that I do. Romans chapter 7. So there is also this battle within. Not just the battle outside, but also the battle within. And all believers, all of us, all of us who are followers of Christ, will have to contend with this self, this ego, this flesh. And sometimes we are our worst enemy. Well, to live for God, we have to die to self. And that's very difficult. Very difficult. So there's a constant battle with our self. But ultimately, all battles, whether it's outside of us or inside of us, is a battle against the evil one, the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in spiritual realms, Ephesians 6. That's where everything comes down to. We can't get away... From the fact that we are living in a battle arena. We are in constant battle against the evil one. Someone once told me, if you do not face the devil everywhere, if you do not face the devil every day, you and he are walking in the same direction. I find that sometimes quite comforting, no? If you do not face the devil every day, you and he are walking in the same direction. So sometimes when we meet with difficulties and challenges, then we say well uh, maybe because i'm doing god's work i was just talking with somebody just a few days ago and he was so discouraged because the church was you know uh, on the on on the on this high spiritual plane they were about to take off and then something happened you know, something happened which threatened to unravel everything and his question to me How could this happen when everything was so fine? And I said, well, brother, you need to know that when God works, the devil also works. And uh, the harder the devil works, you know that you are doing the right thing. So I think he took a lot of comfort in that. I think C.S. Lewis puts it most graphically. Uh, C.S. Lewis, every square inch of the universe, every split second of time is claimed by God and counterclaimed by the devil. Every square inch of the universe and every split second of time is claimed by God and counterclaimed by the devil. The devil will counterclaim everything that is claimed by God. So we cannot help but find ourselves in the battle. We may not like it and we may want out, but we must stay in and fight it. It's not easy and it will not be easy. You know, sometimes I, I, I grieve over how quickly Christians Quit fighting, fighting the good fight. When the going gets tough, they vote with their feet. Uh, When I was pastoring Mount Karma, my first church, for many years we moved from place to place. And some of you understand what this means. But we finally bought a piece of land at West Coast and we embarked on a building project. Uh, It's gonna cost us, it's a multi-million dollar project And I remember when we announced the building project and the amount that we had to raise over the next three years or so. Some members voted their feet. They left the church. They did not want to be around to hear all the appeals for money. Well, it took us seven years from the time we bought the land to the time we dedicated the building. There were many ups and downs, winding roads, dead ends, sacrifice and pain. We finally completed this multi-million dollar facility. Well, during the dedication, some of those who left came back. Uh, I still remember somebody standing next to me said, thick skin. <laughs> you know stick skin? Now these are the people who left over the last seven years. Don't know where they were. Now that the building is finished, they come back. But you know, I didn't feel angry with them. I just felt sorry for them because they missed something. They opted out of the fight. They lost the opportunity to build a house of God. The opportunity to build their faith through earnest prayer and sacrificial giving they missed out something well the good thing was when we completed the building project we were still owing loans which were given to us by church members so we still had to raise a sum of money so they still had the opportunity to give towards the building project but they missed the best part when we were raising funds Going through all the difficulties and strengthening our faith. Well, we, we went through knew that we gained something more than building. We fought a good fight. And we came out of it stronger, richer, and better. So Paul says, I fought a good fight. What he's saying to us is, it's not going to be easy. Nothing is easy. Nothing worthwhile is easy. You have to fight for it. Well, that's the first, step, first statement. The second statement, he says, I finished the race. I finished the race. Now, we're not sure what Paul has in mind when he was talking about the race, but we believe that he is thinking of the marathon. The marathon is the most famous of races in the ancient world. By the way, you know the marathon is the name of a place. It's not a name of a race is the name of a place where a fierce battle was fought between the Greeks and the Persians in the year 490 B.C., about 500 years before Christ. And though the Greeks were outnumbered, they won the battle. And when they won the battle, they sent a soldier who was dispatched to carry the news back to Athens, some 22 miles away. The soldier ran all the way through the night and reaching the city, he ran straight to the magistrates, and he cried out these words, Rejoice, we have won. Well, in English it's four words, in Greek it's only two words, rejoice we have won. He collapsed and died. So marathon became famous as a long-distance race. So in today's term it's 26 miles and 385 yards. or kilometers, 42.7 kilometers. So Paul's cried, I finished the race. It may be an echo of the soldier who ran the first marathon and completed it. So like that soldier, Paul finished the race. He got the message out, and he was ready to collapse and die because he's accomplished his mission. Now, you know that in any long-distance race, it doesn't matter how you start. It does not even matter how you continue. It matters how you finish. Uh, I want to say that when I was in school, I was a cross-country runner, and that was something which I really enjoyed. Uh, We used to do our cross-country running in McCritchie Reservoir. And it's not easy because you have to run through the forest, you have to run on the side of the road, you have to run along the side of the reservoir. And the path is not always straight, not always even, and it was not easy. Uh, The thing about a long distance race is that you have to finish well. It's the last few hundred meters that makes a difference. Well, if you look at the Bible, you find that there are many people who started well, but who finished badly. And Some of you know that I've written a book called Finishing Well, where I look at the lives of about a dozen Bible characters. Most of them started well, but never finished well. Thank God there are a few examples of those who started well and finished well. Those who started badly and finished well. So King Saul, the first king of Israel, started very well. He started as the first king of Israel. He said to Samuel, who anointed him, He said, who am I? I'm from the smallest tribe. My family is unknown. He started humble. He became proud. Um, And he ended up as a lonely, desperate recluse, seeking the help from a witch. In the end, he committed suicide on the battlefield. Solomon started well. He asked for wisdom. God gave him wisdom to rule the people. But he ended ended up as someone whose heart was drawn away by his many wives and their many gods. Judas started well. As one of Jesus' twelve disciples, he ended up betraying Jesus and committing suicide. You know the rich young ruler also started well. He came to the right person, Jesus asked the right question, what shall I do to have eternal life? He got the right answer, go and sell everything, come and follow me. But he went and did the wrong thing. Now He did three things right, but the last thing he did was wrong. So finishing well or running the race calls for endurance, perseverance. Staying the course till it's done. Now when Paul talks about the race, the most crucial element in the race is time. It's time. Um, How do you fare over a period of time? You can do well at the beginning and do well in the middle, but what is it going to be like when you come to the end? You know, I like this story about a man who bought a house, renovated the house. He especially liked the living room. He wanted the living room to be a place where he could have friends come, entertain them, and have a good time. And he particularly wanted the accent. You know, whenever you renovate uh, your home, you like to have something. There's a kind of a conversational piece. When people walk in, they see it immediately and talk about it. So he wanted a painting. He wanted a painting to hang in his living room so that it will... Immediately captured the attention of people, and he thought of um, this scene in the Bible about the children of Israel running away from the armies of Pharaoh, crossing the Red Sea. You know, nothing could be more dramatic than that. So, okay, he went to see the local artist, and he said, um, "You know, I want you to paint for me uh, the scene of the crossing of the Red Sea, Um, and I want to see." Drama, I want to see colors, and I want to see action. But the artist said, No problem. Uh, give me a month, and it's going to cost you $2,000. Uh, the man said, No, 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 I can't wait for a month because I'm having friends over next weekend. Can you do it for me for a week? I'll pay you $200. Uh, the artist said, Okay, um, if, you, if that's what you want, Uh, I'll do it for you. So this is the painting that was given to him. Uh, The man said, what kind of painting is this? Where are the children of Israel? The artist said, well, they've gone over to the other side. (laughs) What about the armies of Pharaoh? Don't you see, they're underneath the ocean, you can't see them. Uh, That's all you get. Just red paint. You want something quick, you want something cheap, you want to get something good. Well, I hope you remember this painting of the Red Sea, when you want something quick. Okay, when Paul says, uh, I have finished the race, what does it mean? Um, It means that it's not going to be quick. But you know, all of us are looking for quick fixes. Well, we thank God for modern medicine. Uh, medication. We are promised uh, immediate relief from pain. You you get an um, injection of epidural or you get an epidural, epidural injection at childbirth. They don't feel any pain. Can deliver a baby without labor pain. Uh, you can get a jab of morphine. Uh, and um, that will relieve you from pain imme- almost immediately. We thank God also for modern travel that take us from one place to another in hours instead of weeks so that you don't have to endure the long and arduous journey. We thank God for instant coffee, and I just had one before this. (laughs) By the way, you know that uh, Westerners despise instant coffee. I remember when I was on sabbatical at Regent College, uh, I stayed in a place with uh, an American guy. And every morning we will meet each other in the communal kitchen. I will make my coffee a three-in-one. I'll pour my three-in-one cup, pour water, and drink. <clears throat> he would go to a cabinet open. Cabinet, he took out a glass. Inside are the coffee beans. Now, he would select. You look at them, and you will take out three or four beans. Then you take it out, and he will crush it with a spoon. And it's almost a ritual for him. Now I I enjoy just watching him. You crush the beans one by one. And then he will put it into his percolator. Um, then he will watch it, you will wash it, boil. Then you will put it in a filter. The whole process will take something like 15 minutes. No? By the time he finished, I already finished drinking my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he told me, he said, David, how can you drink coffee like this? No, this is the way you drink coffee from the bean. No? Uh, right? Anyway, I thank God for instant coffee. I don't have time to go through all this whole process. <laughs> Because now you have microwavable meals, your smartphones, all these modern conveniences, they save us time. But I'm, I must warn us that a lot of these modern conveniences, you know, they, they influence us. Uh, they foster around us a certain culture that we can have the same thing when it comes to relationship. Relationship with people or relationship with God. You know, I'm really, I'm really concerned about how smartphones affecting relationship uh, with people. Um, I mean, I, I'm a traditionalist. I still like to write, hand copy letters. And I'm glad that when I was courting my wife, uh, we wrote letters to each other, so we still have all those letters. Now, those of you who are developing relationships with your Future wife or future husband? I don't know how you're going to keep all those SMS, uh, WhatsApp messages you're going to send each other. You won't have any record, no. Everything is so is so transient and so so temper, uh, uh, There's no record. Um, everything is now becoming easy come and easy go. And that's the that's the downside of anything that's quick. So we cannot apply these quick thesis to relationship people, and especially, especially relationship with God. The Bible does not allow for instant sanctification, or holiness zapped in 5 seconds, or healing guaranteed in minutes, or complete discipleship in the 2-hour seminar. And I must say that today, like the rest of the world, we lack patience. I find that we lack patience to think through an issue, we lack patience to work through a problem, we lack patience to wait for an answer to prayer. We want the answer now, and we want it quick. Well, the unfortunate thing is that Christian leaders, now are, now, Christian leaders are now pressured to offer and to promise quick solutions. Do you know there was a time when we didn't have mobile phones? you want to contact your pastor, you have to send a message to his pager, right? You remember those days where you used to wear a pager? Maybe the younger ones you don't remember. Ask your parents. And then the pager will beep. So you take out the pager, look, there's a phone number there. And you have to look for a public phone. And make sure that you have all those coins in the pocket to use the public phone to call back. And in those days, uh, members who contact us give us a lot of time to respond. Because they know that uh, we may not be near a public phone, or if you are near a public phone, we may not have the coins. I mean, for all kinds of reasons. Now when they send you a WhatsApp message, they want you to reply within five minutes, or sometimes less. Uh, and if you don't reply, they will send you another one. Uh, say, did you get what I sent you? Or they send you by via telegram, or messenger, or email, just to make sure that you know how important your message is. And as a result, I think uh, we lack patience. Patience is getting in short supply. So today, if you look at uh, Christian leaders, they say that you can find God's will in three easy steps. You can man your marriage in five simple steps. You can master the Bible in seven quick lessons. I'm waiting for a book that says, run the marathon in two easy training sessions. Okay, in 2 Timothy, uh, in chapter 2, Paul makes reference to the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And if you look at these three people, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer, they are all models of a Christian. Every one of these models involves time. You need time to train to be a soldier, you need time to train to be an athlete, and you need time as a farmer to wait for your crops to come. Time for training, time for building up the body, time for waiting for the harvest. And so it is a race we are in. It's not quick. Finally, the last statement. I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. If, there are a number of ways we can understand this statement of Paul. If he's speaking as an athlete, he's saying, I've kept the rules. In other words, I've finished the race. I've not broken any of the rules. I don't know whether you remember someone by the name of Ben Johnson. You remember him, Ben Johnson of Canada? won a gold medal for the 100 meters race in the 1988 Olympic Games. In fact, he broke uh, the world record. Um, yeah, 1988, he was found to be taking drugs and the newspaper came out with this picture that says from hero to zero in 9.79 seconds. Well, he finished the race, but he did not keep the rules. He lost. But the way, anyway, I went onto the Wikipedia and I read about him. His, his life is quite tragic. After, he, uh, after his gold medal was taken away from him, he was so devastated. He tried to make a comeback on many occasions. But every time he came back, he never was the first again. He was either the second, the third. And one time, he came in last. Can you imagine that? Uh, and in fact, he said that, well, I came last because I didn't take drugs. Uh, so he won because he was on drugs. Then he tried to go into the movies. He tried to be an actor. Uh, and apparently, in his actor, he was supposed to be chasing somebody. Now he couldn't catch a person. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's the kind of a Wikipedia I can for <laughs> uh, I tell you, it's, his life is full of humor. You know? uh, well, he, he finished the race, but he, he didn't keep the rules. He lost. But if Paul is speaking as a soldier, First of all, if we speak as an athlete, it means he kept the rules of the game, of the sports. If we speaking a soldier, it means that he has kept the oath of loyalty. You know, soldiers, they have to pledge loyalty to their country, they pledge loyalty to the commander-in-chief. So this soldier has completed his service without betraying his country. He has fulfilled what he has vowed. So Paul is saying that I've been loyal to my God and I've been faithful to my vow. Well, Paul here could be all speaking as a business person. If you are dealing with uh, your business partners, at the end of everything, you say, I've kept my contract. In other words, I've kept my part of the contract. I've kept my side of the bargain. I've not cheated. I've not cheated you. I've done everything I am supposed to do, and I've not done anything I'm not supposed to do. Now, one word we can use to describe all these things that I'm talking about is the word uh, (coughs) faithfulness. I've kept the faith. To keep the faith means faithfulness. And I must tell you that of all the qualities in the world today, faithfulness is the rarest of qualities. Faithfulness is the rarest of qualities. And I'll tell you why. You see, because faithfulness always involves another person. You're faithful to someone. Someone, maybe your spouse, maybe your employer, maybe your God, uh, maybe your commander-in-chief. You see, faithfulness or loyalty does not make sense in the world. We are taught to think only of ourselves. Even in school, they are telling children, do your own thing, be true to yourself, follow your heart. In other words, don't let yourself be influenced by other people. Think for yourself. Follow your passion. Fulfill your dream. It's always what I want. You see, all these advice are well and good, but it must not take away from us our responsibility, or accountability to others. I live in the U.S. for over 10 years, and one of the things which I find heartbreaking is to see the way husband or wife walking away from their marriage and their home, uh, especially men who walk away from their wives who still have young children. I still remember one time I preached in the church in the U.S. Uh, on marriage from 1 Corinthians, and this man spoke me up to the service. He told me he is divorced. He left his wife and two young kids. And ironically, he said, I, I enjoyed your sermon, and I believe everything that you have taught from the Word of God. I still believe in marriage. I still believe in marriage. And I still believe that when two persons get married, it is for, for life. Well, I didn't dare to ask him the question then, why did you walk away from your wife and your kids? But he gave the answer. He said, you know, in the U.S., the women always fight for equality. So my wife now equal with me. She can take care of the kids. I don't have to take care of her. So everybody is on his own. Well, I think of my own mother and father. They never get along very well. They quarreled, they fought, sometimes violently. For many years, they didn't even sleep in the same room. But you know, that generation, they stuck with each other. Divorce was never the question. They would raise the children, they would stick together, until they died. die. And I remember when my mother passed away, my father stood by her side, silently, with tears in his eyes. I wasn't there at that time, but my younger brother was there. My younger brother said, what my father said to him was, I've lost my best friend. I can't understand it. When you're alive, you're fighting. no? When you die, you say, I lost my best friend. Or maybe, well, we praise God that both of them came to know the Lord late in their life. Maybe that was the thing that brought them back together. Uh, But you see, that was a generation of people who knew what was loyalty and faithfulness. But the spirit of our world today is such that when the going gets tough, we quit. We look for the softer options. We want the easy way out. so, Let me close. Uh, this is a sign on Paul's uh, shop. Huh? It's not easy, not quick, and not cheap. Uh, two all three. Uh, who <laughs> who wants to walk into a shop like this? Uh, I mean, it's not going to be easy, it's not going to be quick, it's not going to be cheap. But let me leave you with this thought. Uh, your your vision, your theme for the year is a spirit-filled prayer life. And you know, prayer is one thing that it will take us a whole life to learn. But well, let me say to you that the spirit-filled life, or the spirit-filled prayer life, or the spirit-filled family life—it's not going to be easy. It's going to take everything from you. It's not going to be quick. Um, it's not going to happen in weeks or months or even in years. It's going to be lifelong, and it's not going to be cheap. Um, It's going to be costly in terms of time, in terms of money, in terms of energy. Everything that you have, God is asking from you. But the wonderful thing is this, when God asks us for something, He always gives us something in return. He says, if you were to keep your life, you lose it. But if you lose your life, for my sake and for the gospel's sake, you will keep it. In other words, you will have everything that He wants to give you. I remember a simple exercise I did during one of the seminars I conducted. I wanted to illustrate what it means to let go. Or like what Pastor Peter said about having an open hand. So I got two volunteers up. I gave one volunteer a 50 cent coin, and I told the other volunteer, take the money from him. Uh, I make sure that I get two persons who are quite muscular, and you can see them fighting. Huh? Uh, this guy is trying to get the money from me, and the guy is holding back. And um, after they struggled for a while, I said, okay, let me, let me show you how to get the money from him without even saying anything, without even touching him. You know how you do it? I took out my wallet, pulled out a $5 note. Straight away, he gave me the 50 cents. <laughs> well, I'll leave you to think about it. Are you still holding on to your 50 cents? When God has promised us so much more, if we only let go, it's not going to be easy, it's not going to be quick, it's not going to be cheap. Let us pray. Lord, we are grateful to you for giving us an opportunity to reflect on your word, this powerful declaration of the Apostle Paul. Lord, we pray that you will keep what you have heard in our hearts, in our minds, that we will not forget that you call us to a life of discipleship, you call us to a life of carrying the cross. It's not going to be easy, it's not going to be quick, it's not going to be cheap. Help us to work this out in our lives in the coming year. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.